Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. As a young man in early 19th century England, George Mueller was a penniless thief, cheat, gambler, all-around scoundrel. He stole money from his family and closest friends, spent at least a month in jail, but invited to study the Bible with others, and Mueller was converted at 20 and became a radically different man, a new man in Christ. After briefly pastoring an 18-member church, Mueller began his ministry to orphans in Bristol, England, committing to God that he would only ever ask God, not others, for what he needed. His care for the orphans uh, flowed out of his trust in Psalm 68.5. Father to the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Mueller would write, If I, a poor man, can build and administer an orphanage without asking anyone for money or assistance, only through prayer and faith, this together with the blessing of the Lord could encourage God's children in faith, being also a powerful testimony to the unbelievers about the existence of God. Looking back on his legacy... 17,000 orphans were cared for by the Mueller Orphan Homes in Bristol, particularly at Ashley Down Orphanage. Uh, During Mueller's life, uh, there were 10,024 orphans cared for. Uh, Mueller had no money himself, and he had less than 170 pounds, uh, sterling pounds, uh, when he died. But over the course of his life, Mueller's ministry received roughly 1.4 million pounds. This was during the mid to late 1800s. So 1.4 million sterling pounds. Today, that's about, in American dollars, $250 million. Solely through prayer and faith in God's provision. None by fundraising or solicitation. One great story of God's provision for Mueller comes from Abigail Townsend Luff, uh, the daughter of Mueller's close friend and assistant, John Townsend, and uh, she tells it this way. Uh, One morning, all the plates and cups and bowls on the table were empty. There was no food in the larder and no money to buy food. The children, orphans, were standing, there were about 300 orphans, standing for their morning meal when Mueller said, children, you know uh, we must be in time for school. Then lifting up his hands, he prayed, Dear Father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. There was a knock at the door. The baker stood there and said, Mr. Miller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast. And the Lord wanted me to send you some, so I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread, and I've brought it. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker and said to the orphans, Children, we not only have bread, but fresh bread. No sooner had the baker left 
where there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage, and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so he could empty his wagon and repair it. Uh, the preacher, R.A. Torrey, said that George Mueller never prayed for a thing just because he wanted it, or even just because he felt it was greatly needed for God's work. When it was laid upon George Mueller's heart to pray for anything, he would search the scriptures to find if there was some promise that covered the case. Sometimes he would search the scriptures for days before he presented his petition to God. And then when he found the promise with his open Bible before him and his finger upon that promise, he would plead that promise and so he received what he asked. He always prayed with an open Bible before him. It was God's promises, God's word, God's revelation of himself that ultimately drove the prayer and the life and the actions of George Mueller. As a result, as a result the Lord did mighty works in and through him. In Acts 18, 1-17, we see the Lord give the Apostle Paul commands, but he couches those commands, grounds those commands, upon particular promises to Paul. We'll see in the section that Paul obeys God's commands by living in light of God's promises in Christ. God's promises will continue to drive the prayer and the actions of the Apostle Paul as he proclaims the gospel in this new town of Corinth. Three points this morning for those of you who are taking notes. The first is this. Live for God's kingdom, not yours. Live for God's kingdom, not yours. We'll be looking in particular mm, the first three, four verses. Live for God's kingdom, not yours. The second, persuade others with the word as God's watchman. Persuade others with the word like God's watchman. Be looking at verses 4 to 11. Persuade others with the word like God's watchman. The third, obey God's commands as you trust God's promises. Obey God's commands as you trust God's promises. We'll be looking in, in particular at verses 9 to 17. Obey God's commands as you trust God's promises. All right, Paul has left Athens. He's just preached at the Areopagus or Mars Hill. He's given his case for the Christian faith to a bunch of Greek philosophers. We see Paul teach us how to rightly contextualize the gospel in order to see all kinds of people come to saving faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul sees Jewish and, Christ, uh, Jewish and Gentile converts alike in Athens before he travels to Corinth. And we've gone through 1 Corinthians, so we've, we've spent a lot of time looking at the Corinthian culture and congregation. But just very brief 
overview, Corinth was a major metropolitan city in Greece and centrally located as a major trade city in the Roman Empire. People from all over the Roman world were constantly in and out of the city. Jobs were plentiful. They loved rhetoric. They loved the pursuit of wisdom. Immorality was everywhere. Idols were everywhere. They worshipped particularly Poseidon, uh, Apollo, and uh, the goddess Aphrodite. The temple of Aphrodite was so wealthy that they had over a thousand temple servants and cult prostitutes. The Ithmian games occurred in Corinth, second only to the Olympics. It was the uh, two-year uh, biannual games, years two and four of the Olympiad. Corinth was, a, was an important city in the Roman Empire. First point, live for God's kingdom, not yours. So Acts 18 opens with Paul arriving in Corinth in this major city. Paul's desire was to see a church planted in this centrally located and influential trade city in this Roman Empire. The Lord was bringing the nations to this city from all over the place. And Paul rightly saw Corinth as a strategic strategic city for gospel ministry. So establishing the church in a, in a city like Corinth provided amazing opportunities for the church to spread like wildfire all over the place in the Roman Empire as people from all over the world regularly traveled there and then went out. So almost immediately upon Paul's arrival in Corinth, he runs into a Jewish Christian named Aquila and his believing wife Priscilla. So a couple of helpful points here for context. When is all of this happening? We can date Acts 18, at least verses 1 to 4, to be right about 50, 51 A.D. Because of the event that Luke notes in, in verse 2. The Roman emperor Claudius had booted all of the Jews out of Rome in 49 A.D. The Roman historian Suetonius writes that this edict that expelled Jews was aimed at men of foreign birth. So Jewish men of foreign birth. Aquila would have been a Jewish man of foreign birth because he was a native of Pontus, which is northern, uh, modern-day Turkey. So Aquila would have been booted with Priscilla. But interestingly, Suetonius also tells us, the Roman historian tells us why foreign-born Jews were kicked out of Rome in 49 AD. He writes that they, quote, Constantly made disturbance as at the instigation of Crestus. Jews were booted out of Rome because of fights over what Suetonius says is Crestus. So it's extremely likely that Suetonius just misspelled because of the same sound, Christus. So, in other words, this Roman historian likely tells us that foreign-born Jews were expelled from Rome because of the conflict stirred up by Christians sharing the good news of Christ, Christus, in the city of Rome 
And as we've seen in Acts, pretty consistently, some Jews believe, but most don't, and then there's a riot that starts. So, it's not just Paul and his team, it's not just Barnabas and John Mark who are going to unreached areas in order to tell others the good news about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Christians like us. Christians whose names are not written in the book of the New Testament, but whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, are doing work at the same time that Paul is doing work and Luke is recording it in the book of Acts. So it should, it should encourage you that the Lord, even the, the, the New Testament is inspired, but it doesn't tell all of the things that are happening all over the world. And so we see that there are faithful Christians preaching the gospel in Rome. Jews don't like it. They rebel. And so the emperor gives everyone the boot. Ordinary Christians doing the work of the Great Commission, turning the city of Rome upside down for the sake of Christ. And this is all before Paul is even able to get there himself. In Acts 18, we see that Aquila and Priscilla are also believers, were likely doing the work of Christian ministry in Rome prior to settling in Corinth. So Paul meets this couple, they find, he finds out that they're both Christians and that they both work in the same industry. They're tent makers or or leather workers. They allow the Apostle Paul to live with them and work out of their home because they recognize the importance of Paul's apostolic mission. They open their home to be an apostolic base for Paul, not only to work for a living, to work for food, but also to work to preach to the Jews in Corinth week after week after week, in order that the Jews might rightly see Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and expectations. So it's important for us, before we look at what Paul is doing, we've got to understand that Aquila and Priscilla are not Christian superheroes. They are not superheroes. They are ordinary people who have been made new by the work of Christ. Aquila and Priscilla, they don't have graduate degrees. Okay? And as far as we're aware, they've had no formal theological training. They were not attending the Corinthian Baptist Theological Seminary. Okay? They were not serving as ministry interns at Corinthian Hills Baptist Church. Okay, Aquila and Priscilla were a Christian man and a Christian woman, a husband and a wife, who worked a trade, tent making, leather work. Their trade afforded them the opportunity to get up and move around as needed and to minister for Christ's sake in whatever city God placed them. I need you to understand that Aquila and Priscilla were not extraordinary. We have a tendency to take the names in the Bible and say, oh man... They're like otherworldly. No, they're not. They're not. They've been used mightily by the Lord. But they're no different from you. Flesh and blood. 
They had a home where they could show hospitality. They had a trade that afforded them the ability to live in the city and to, and to minister and to be generous. They weren't so concerned with building a tent-making empire that they saw the Apostle Paul as a competitor and as an impediment to their race to the top. They saw everything they had as gifts from God and tools to help advance the gospel in their city. In other words, they had a kingdom mindset. They had a kingdom mindset. Not a worldly one. They saw tent making as a means to an end. Financing their ministry in the city. They saw their home as a means of serving the advance of God's kingdom by housing the the Apostle Paul, helping him plant a local church in Corinth. We'll later see that this couple, they become travel companions with Paul. They help Apollos later in the chapter. They travel with Apollos back to Corinth. Paul will write in Romans 16.5 that Aquila and Priscilla risked their necks for Paul. And eventually, they host a Roman local church in their home, Paul says in Romans 16.5. How could they travel so much? They had a trade that met their needs and afforded them flexibility for the sake of Christ. If they had a house, they used it for the sake of the kingdom and for Christ's church. Whether to house an apostle or to house a local church. They gave their time, properties, goods, resources up for the good of Christ's church in order to make much much of Jesus. And once we get it into our heads that the many names in our New Testaments were just ordinary folks being used by an extraordinary God, the quicker we can realize and be encouraged that God can use us, very weak, ordinary people, in our own culture today for the sake of his kingdom. Are you a kingdom-minded saint? Are you a kingdom-minded saint? If you're married and you have kids and you have a job, it's important. It's very important that you work hard as unto the Lord in order to provide for your family. But if, if you see your responsibilities as stopping there, you have an incomplete picture. If you're single, either single for the sake of Christ or single currently, and, and you are working, paying your bills, but you are not wearing yourself out for the kingdom of God, You're missing the point of the freedom that the Lord has given you. All of us will stand before the Lord on the last day and give an account for our time and for everything that we have been entrusted with in order to maximize the name of Jesus and His glory in this old creation. You will not take your family with you to the new creation. You will not take your marriage with you to the new creation. 
you will not take your house or your stuff to the new creation. What you have done for Christ, you will take to the new creation. Are you a kingdom-minded saint? Or are you a Christian who lives in the United States and who looks a lot like the rest of America? How many of you students, whether it's high school, college, middle school, if the Lord has converted you, how many of you students are thinking strategically, not about Call of Duty, but about the educational and career paths that will maximize not only your wallet, but the spread of the gospel? I don't want any of you to think that, like, well, the pastor has to think strategically about his, his educational track because he's got to teach us. And you've got to take the gospel to the ends of the earth in fulfillment of the Great Commission. So, you young folks, are, are you thinking strategically about school tracks that are going to, like, I, I want to be able to provide for a, uh, a wife and children or for myself, but, like, I've got to do something that's going to be able to allow me to minister the gospel. I need freedom. I, I want to have access in closed countries. I want to be able to make as much as money as possible, not to keep it for myself, but to give generously to the church and to Christian ministries to see the gospel go forward. You're not too young to be faithful to Jesus. Let the little children come to me, Jesus said. How many of you high schoolers are thinking of a particular college or a trade or a job not solely from the perspective of what do I like doing or how much money can I make but primarily how much does this educational track or this career or this trade or this employer give me opportunities to be a mission-minded Christian where I am? If you're self-employed and you're a business owner like Aquila and Priscilla, are you seeing your work and your business through the lens of God's kingdom? Don't just see your work as steps to living a certain kind of lifestyle. There's so much more than just that. This old creation lifestyle that you, you want to have will burn. Don't, don't simply think about trying to accomplish certain financial goals. That, that, that's fine. But don't live for that. Don't, don't think about trying to provide a future nest egg, particularly if you want to spend an inordinate amount of time pursuing your hobbies. If you want to have a massive nest egg so you can think about a second or a third career as a missionary or as a full-time volunteer at the local church, then praise God. See your work in this old creation through the lens of Jesus' parable of the talents. God has entrusted to each of his servants a certain amount of resources. Not all of us have the same amount. Okay? Some of us, like, have the one talent. And that's fine. And some of us have the ten talents. But the Lord's going to hold us accountable for what we did with what he gave us. It's, it's not ours to complain. Why did he get ten and I got one? 
It's to say, I'm going to be as faithful as possible, spend my life to maximize this one talent that the Lord gave me so that I can, I can give him two when either he returns or I see him in glory. You, you've got to see everything in light of, of our master returning of seeing that we will give an account to him for what we did for him with the things he entrusted to us. If you own a business, what would it take you? What would it take you? Just, just, I'm not saying this is a command, obviously. But just, this is how we should be thinking. And it shouldn't be just pastors thinking this. If we own a business, what would it take for you to hire a church planner and pay him a full-time wage, but then only require him to work 20, 25, 25 hours a week doing what you're, you're paying them for and then spending 20, 25 hours a week working to plant a church. For those of you who have extra space in your homes, what, what would it look like if you provided housing for Christian missionaries on furlough so that they could get rest? Uh, two brothers at Emmanuel Baptist started a business in Louisville. Uh, they raised money, and one by one, they started buying up apartment complexes. And uh, they used, they, they would turn these apartment complexes that were really in poor shape, they'd fix them up, and then they'd open, open them, because Louisville's a refugee city, uh, they'd open them up to, to refugees. A lot of unreached people groups in Louisville. They'd open up these apartment complexes, overwhelming refugee population. They would then hire, typically, people from saints from Emmanuel, or just like-minded saints, to work maintenance, or to have a family that, to live in that apartment complex for free, and their job was to minister and to evangelize. And they're doing quite well, very well, in fact. It's not, it's not the case that when you work for Jesus, you got to be poor. The Lord does save wealthy people and give wealth in order that you might maximize it for Christ. A decade later, they own a whole lot of apartment complexes with Christians sprinkled throughout their large refugee and local Louisville populations. For those of you who work for an employer, how can you initiate gospel conversations with your coworkers? Are you thinking about strategizing? Like, how can I share the gospel with so-and-so? How, how, how can we have him or her over for a meal regularly? Are you thinking strategically about how to do it? Are you using your retirement or your job's flexibility or your sizable income for the sake of God's kingdom and the advance of Christ's church? Those are all rhetorical questions that I'm not answering for you that you need to give an answer to the Lord and to think about. But I don't want to ask these questions as to rebuke you. I, I want to give clear evidences of grace. Scott and Suzanne Koenig, fantastic examples of hospitality and generosity. Praise the Lord for that. Fainted into flame. I'm going to say this since she's not here. Chandler Durth, an excellent example don't any of y'all point her to the sermon either. Chandler Durth, an excellent example of using all of her extra time 
I mean, legitimately, all of her extra time. How, how, many, how many of you women have not met with her one-on-one? Like, just for coffee, or counseling, or Bible study, or whatever. Counseling numerous women, couples, with me, leading our women's ministry, taking teen girls under her wing in discipleship. I mean, often having my oldest daughter sleep over at her house on Saturdays, just to spend time with her. Showing hospitality to the saints, all without a husband being here. She could use that as an excuse to pull back from ministering, but she doesn't. Brother from James Island Christian Church owns a small business, hired Jake in order to free up our brother to do more ministry in the city. Often is regularly like, do you have enough time to be doing ministry? Are you spending too much time working in my business? It's a radical mind shift. Brendan and Danielle Campbell, regularly giving of their time, opening up their home in order to love and minister to our young men and women. I don't know any young man or woman in this congregation who doesn't know this guy who's trying to pretend like he's young (laughs) over here taking a seat and his wife loving on them. It's kingdom mindset. It's not like we've got to figure out how to plant uh, 10,000 churches in the next five years. It's, it's not, don't be ridiculous and complicated about it. Show hospitality. Give generously. Think strategically. Aquila and Priscilla were doing that. They were not threatened, you know, by, by having somebody who works in the same industry as them, working out of their own house because they were like, we're all the same family. We're all working for the same Jesus. Why would I, we not host him and house him? It was strategic, humble on their part. The Apostle Paul himself, 1 Corinthians 9, we know that. Regularly working outside of the ministry, tent making, leather work, in order to provide for himself so as to not be a financial burden on the new churches he was planting. He did that intentionally, though he had every right to be paid by them. He said, no, I'm going to work over here so there's no stumbling block to you believing. Whatever skills, gifts the Lord has given you, maximize them for the sake of the kingdom. Wherever God has placed you, leverage what you have for the sake of the kingdom. Be strategic for Christ's church. Your ordinary obedience and hospitality or encouragement or administration or service or evangelism will advance God's kingdom. You don't have to be a professional God-man, as Suzanne likes to tell me, to, to advance Christ's church. You can be a homeschool mom. You can be a single guy. You can be a retiree. Just living your life for Christ. That being the focus and central of everything that you do. God will take your ordinary, make it extraordinary for his name's sake and for the sake of his kingdom. Aquila and Priscilla are models for all of us because their lives teach us that normal acts of Christian obedience and ordinary acts of grace that flow out of a heart of faith can be mightily used by God for Christ's sake. 
The Roman church got started with the help of an ordinary Christian couple who offered their house as a meeting place. Because they loved Jesus and they loved his people. A Christian couple used the flexibility of their job and the income they produced to serve the church, see God's kingdom advance. Kingdom-minded saints should be the norm at Holy City Church. Whatever the Lord's given you. So we need to press into these things by faith. For Christ's sake. All right, second point. Persuade others with the word like God's or as God's watchman. We see that the generosity of Aquila and Priscilla provide a base for Paul to preach to the Jews and the Greeks, particularly in the synagogue every Sabbath. Again, Paul's conviction and strategic pattern is to first address the Jews, God's old covenant people, unfold for them, seek to persuade for, uh, to them from the Old Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah that they have been longing for. His life, death, and resurrection has fulfilled all of God's promises. Not only would the Jews be anticipating the Old Testament Messiah, but they'd have a biblical worldview so that when Paul's planting a church, he's got people who actually know what the Bible says as members there. So when Silas and Timothy arrive, they bring a gift from the churches previously planted by Paul. We know this from 2 Corinthians 11. Verses 8 and 9. To the Corinthians who were, you know, fussy about Paul. I robbed other churches. I, I took from other churches, Paul's telling the Corinthians. By accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, Timothy and Silas, supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Paul's just giving us a little commentary on what's actually happening right here in Acts 18. This financial gift allows Paul to stop making tents, at least for a time, and having to work in leather in order to eat, and then frees him up to give himself wholly to preaching the gospel of Christ crucified and raised for sinners to those people who would listen, whoever would listen. So Paul's church plant network is already serving one another. It's a good thing for us to be a part of a like-minded network where we link arms together as we labor for Christ all over the world. We've been recipient of many gifts from our manual network partners, our Charleston Baptist Association, the South Carolina Baptist Convention, just as the Macedonian churches helped Paul and the Corinthian church when they were in great need. Namely, they needed Paul to be preaching and teaching them full-time. We've been able to help and have been helped ourselves by other generous, faithful local churches more interested in building God's kingdom than their own personal kingdoms. So we give monthly roughly 10% of our budget. Charleston Baptist, South Carolina Baptist, North American Mission Board, International Mission Board, International Missionaries, the Emmanuel Network, and then on top of that, we regularly support local ministries in our city. Low country pregnancy, James Island Outreach, giving food to those in need. We want to be generous as we're all seeking to share the love of Jesus in our city, our state, and to the ends of the earth. We give 3% of our budget specifically to see 
like-minded churches planted and recultivated in the Emmanuel Network. It's important to be generous in this work. Lord willing, in two weeks when we're back, we'll be able to give an update on what the Lord's doing in and through the Emmanuel Network and our partner churches. So Paul preaches the word. He shows the Jews from the Old Testament. Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. He is the fulfillment. Jesus is the promised son who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the promised son of Abraham who would, through whom the nations would be blessed. Jesus is the promised son of David through whom God would usher in this everlasting kingdom and he would sit on the throne forever. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He is the true atonement sacrifice. He is the true suffering servant. By his blood, our sins are forgiven. By his stripes, we are healed. We are washed. We are made clean. God's just wrath against us is exhausted and satisfied. Jesus is the promised Messiah who would die for his people, be raised up so that he would see his offspring. He is David's son and David's Lord, the only begotten son of God, the true Israel, the shoot from Jesse's stump who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Jesus is the promised prophet, priest, and king who will reveal God to us, intercede before God for us, ushering God's rule for us. And Paul spends Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath unfolding these realities to the Jews in the synagogue in Corinth, seeking to persuade them to see that God has kept His promises in Christ. And some believe. In fact, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, his entire household is converted and baptized. No evidence of babies being baptized there, okay? We're Baptist. It's begging the question. Faith precedes these things. They believe and they're baptized. Normal obedience. But we're also seeing the Great Commission being fulfilled, Right? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Right? This household conversion story is the first where the ruler of a synagogue has been converted. God has saved the God-fearing Gentile Cornelius and his family. He has saved the Gentile woman Lydia and her household. He has saved the Gentile idolater Philippian jailer. And his household, and now the Lord saves a Jewish synagogue ruler in his household. The Lord loves to save all kinds of people. Good news for us. But it is the Word of God that does the work. And God's Word produces two different results. Hardening the unbelieving hearts of some people, while softening the hearts and giving faith to the saints. So when the unbelieving Jews oppose and revile Paul for preaching Christ, he shakes out his garment, or like, it's like shaking off the dust of his feet. It's a prophetic act. Telling them that their blood is on their own heads. Now Paul, like the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, has called the Jewish people to repent as Israel's watchmen. But the people of Israel have refused Yahweh's commands, and so God has hardened them for destruction and the unbelieving Jews only have themselves to blame. God has been clear through his word, and they have refused to believe it. Ezekiel 33, 1-9. to 
The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hands. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Paul sees himself rightly as a watchman of the Lord. If Paul doesn't warn people of God's coming wrath and God's salvation plan in Christ Jesus, then their blood would be on Paul for Paul failing to warn them. Since Paul has warned the people and they have not heeded the warning, their blood is now on their heads. Let us see ourselves, beloved, as watchmen for the Lord. Call to warn others to repent and to turn to God in faith. But let us not be guilty of failing to do the work of a watchman. To fail to warn those God has given to us. A spouse, children, neighbors, regular attendance in a local church. To fail to warn those God has given to us and placed us around us of the coming day of judgment, and to exhort and persuade them to look to the righteousness of God that is found by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. By God's grace, Paul was innocent of the blood of the Jews in Corinth since he proclaimed the good news to them and they rejected it. Uh, Patrick Schreiner, a friend, a former Emmanuel member, He's a professor at Midwestern New Testament. He asked this uh, piercing question in his Acts commentary. I'm going to have to email him about it. How many ministers, like with Paul, how many ministers can say they are innocent of the blood of those in their communities? If you feel the weight of conviction as you answer that question, he's not just talking about pastors. Here's the hope of us. There's the hope for us weak saints. If we have been unfaithful to God's call to share the good news, today there is grace at the cross of Christ. As we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, we've been fully forgiven. No wrath remains. Therefore, let us be filled with the love of Christ because of God's grace towards us so that it overflows in love towards others around us. Let's gently and lovingly call others to repent and believe. Let us run to the cross where we know that we enjoy the full forgiveness of sins in Christ. Confess to the Lord that we have not been faithful as watchmen. 
But then, in faith and repentance, let us go out once again in the power of the Spirit, filled with gospel love as we meditate on the glories of our King and share the good news with those around us in our communities. But as we remember, but we must remember, rather, as we labor, that Paul sought to persuade from and was occupied with the Word. The Word of God accomplishes the work of God. God's Word alone goes out, and it does not return empty or void. It accomplishes everything for which He purposes it. Prophet Isaiah says that in Isaiah 55. In trying to persuade, Paul isn't flattering his listeners. He's not trying to strong arm them, strong arm them. He's not lying to them. He's not leaning so much on his eloquence that he will eventually write the Corinthians. You, you knew that I came with timidity and fear and 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 I'm not great at rhetoric. He's not manipulating them. He's seeking to demonstrate the truthfulness of the message, show that it's grounded in God's revelation, God's redemptive plan, and win their minds and hearts while trusting the power of the gospel and the Spirit of God to raise those who are spiritually dead, to give faith where there's unbelief. So as you seek to share the gospel with others, aim to persuade people. So if you're going to aim to persuade people, you actually have to seek to be persuasive. And if you're going to seek to be persuasive, that means that you can't be lazy. You you have to know what the Bible teaches. You have to know God's promises. Like you don't you you when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you don't want that to be the first time that you've ever done it. When you're stumbling and bumbling with an unbeliever, is there grace for that? Of course. But if you want to seek to be persuasive, that requires effort and work, and diligence. None of us would be happy if we paid a contractor to do some kind of work in our home. For him to say, well, you know, I did my best, and it's just a hot mess, right? Why do we permit that? With our own evangelism. Why do we permit that with Christian ministry? Wherever God's placed you, to the degree that God has enabled you, seek to be persuasive as best you can. And know ultimately it's not up to my persuasive words. It's the Lord moving and saving. It also means that if you're seeking to be persuasive, that you're willing to dialogue with people. Okay, I I mean, I love street preaching, that's great. But, But be willing to have a back and forth. Don't take it personally if they reject the Jesus in you. Depersonalize it. Don't take someone else's unbelief as a personal attack against you. Being persuasive also means that you're constantly striving to grow in your effectiveness and communicating and proclaiming the gospel. If you're proclaiming the gospel regularly to your kids or to your spouse or to one another in this, in this congregation, then it should flow naturally. But if it's not good, if, if you're like, I'm not very good at sharing the gospel, then that might mean that you're not sharing the gospel enough with the people who believe it. So start there. Preach it to yourself. But when you've sought to be persuasive and you've been loving in your communication, 
and you've been clear in the gospel, and your listener has not only refused the gospel, but they've become resistant or antagonistic or demanded that you stop, believe it, uh, beloved, you've done your part. You're free. You've done your part. If they're like, do not share that with me again. Okay. You have judged yourself unworthy of the gospel. And the Lord loves you so much to give you the grace and the freedom to reject him. You've been the watchman that warns them against the coming judgment. And if they don't want to hear the good news of salvation in Jesus, they have the freedom to reject God's offer. They do. You can't force and control people to believe. Just like you couldn't control yourself in believing. Like Paul, you can walk away with a clear conscience, knowing that the refusal of the gospel is their blood on their heads, praying that the Lord would give you a future opportunity. The Lord would soften their hearts. But beloved, let us not be guilty of having their blood on our heads because we refuse to obey the Great Commission and the command to love our neighbor by withholding the gospel from those around us who are willing to hear it. Like Paul, trust the power of the word. Like Paul, honor someone's refusal to hear and believe the gospel with a clear conscience. Their blood is on their heads. You can't control their responses. Move on and keep preaching as unto the Lord. Trust the results with Him. You're the messenger, the ambassador. You you didn't create the message. You're just giving it. Proclaim the message faithfully as the king's representative. If they reject the king, that's on them. You haven't. Keep proclaiming. Third point. Obey God's commands as you trust God's promises. Try and get through this quick. Paul has a vision from the Lord. King Jesus tells him in verses 9 and 10, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So I want you to notice in verses 9 and 10, the Lord Jesus gives Paul three commands. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Even the Apostle Paul is tempted to be afraid in preaching the gospel. All right, so if you're like, man, that preaching the gospel evangelism really terrifies me, well, like you're in great company. So was the greatest missionary in the history of the church. The Lord Jesus had to tell him, do not be afraid. The Lord gives three commands don't be afraid, go on speaking, do not be silent. But the Lord doesn't simply give three commands, He grounds those three commands in three glorious promises for Paul. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking, do not be silent, for or because, one, I'm with you. Two, no one will attack you to harm you. Three, for I have many in this city who are my people. Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh tells his people not to fear. Why? Because I am with you. I will protect you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Don't be afraid, Paul, for I'm with you. We're often tempted to be fearful because we think it's all up to us. We're on our own, or the Lord has abandoned us. But in Christ, God has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus gave us the great commission. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything that I have commanded you. And... I am with you always to the end of the age. 
You have a great commission with a promise. Jesus is with you always. I am with you. It isn't necessary for you to feel that God is with you when He has promised that He is with you. Okay? If, if my relationship with the Lord was based upon how I feel, I would have abandoned the faith and I probably wouldn't be living decades back. When you're loving the Lord and pursuing Him, but things feel flat or heavy, just remember that your life and faith isn't grounded in feelings about God, but rather in promises from God. He is with you, so you don't have to be afraid. The Lord Jesus tells Paul, go on speaking because no one will attack you to harm you. Keep speaking, Paul. I'll physically protect you from harm. People will say unkind things. That will harm your feelings, your emotions, but they won't harm you. Your feelings might be hurt. Your pride might be wounded. That, that's good. But I'll guard you that they may not hurt you. I'll keep you safe while you continue to speak about me. Do not be silent, Paul, for I have many in this city who are my people. Preach, Paul, because I have elected many in this city unto salvation, and they will hear my call through your gospel preaching. Beloved, there are no greater comforts in evangelism, no greater grounds for confidence in gospel preaching than resting in the facts that God elected or chose His people in salvation from, the, from before the foundations of the world. He is exhaustively sovereign over all things, including my faith and your faith, my preaching and your preaching, and that He will bring all of His people to salvation. Let me just tell you, like as a guy who's planted a church and preaches you know, regularly, my hope is not in like, well, how well did I do? How many illustrations? How long did I go? How short was I? Like, were people engaged? Were some people asleep? How were they interacting with me the entire time? No, it is. God will call His people to Himself. His voice might sound like mine in doing so. And that is a grace that He would use a weak man like me to call His people to Himself. But my hope is that God will call His people to Himself because there are many in this city who are called by His name and who have not yet believed. Not a one of Jesus' sheep will be lost or miss the call of the Savior. God is exhaustively sovereign. In His divine wisdom, He uses means to save His people. Means. Means. Gospel preaching through ordinary weak people like us. Former murderers, former thieves, former immoral Sexually immoral men and women, former idolaters. He uses us, redeems us, regenerates us, makes us new in Christ, and tells us, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I have many in the city who are my people. They will hear my call. They will respond with faith to the gospel when I've planned. And all that my messenger has to do is proclaim my good news. And trust that I will draw my people to himself. George Mueller prayed for like five different people for them to be converted. And like within a handful of years, like three or four of them had been converted. And he prayed for one man for 64, 65 years. Regularly. Daily. 
praying for this man's conversion, believing that the Lord would save him. And the man was converted two to three months after Mueller died. Knowing that there are many in this city and all over the world who are Christ's people but have not yet believed gives me tremendous hope in my preaching and evangelism. Because I'm an idiot in and of myself. It's the foundation. God is sovereign. I just need to be faithful, obediently proclaim the good news. God will use my weak efforts, bring his people to himself, how he desires, when he desires. And beloved, it is good news that none of us could thwart God's effectual call on our lives. <laughs> it is good news. If salvation and faith was up to each of us, we'd all be ruined. We would all be ruined. If, as a spiritually dead man, I had to conjure up a living faith in order to be saved, what hope is there? I wouldn't even see my need. I'm dead. If my salvation was grounded in my autonomy, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to gain salvation, much less keep it. God alone is the sovereign one. Our hope in sharing the gospel isn't our persuasive words or clever rhetoric or cultural relevancy, but in our God who has elected his people unto salvation, revealed himself and his son in his word, and who uses our weak preaching efforts to make his powerful redemption effectual in the life of his people. God, uh, Paul has given commands, but they are steeped in glorious promises. And so what does Paul do? Paul stays ministering and laboring for 18 months in Corinth, living off of God's promises while he's obeying God's commands. Evangelism and discipleship are necessary for the life of the church. Do you know God's promises to you in Christ so that you can proclaim it to others? If not, let's labor in that. By God's grace. If you want to grow in obedience and faithfulness in Christian ministry, you not only need to know God's commands. That's, that, typically, that's what we've been to. What does God command? Do this, do this, do this. Don't do this. Don't often spend as much time as, what, is, what has God promised me? What has God said about himself and about me? And meditate on that. And then let that fuel, that, these gospel truths fuel my obedience. If you want your muscles to work as they ought, exercising, lifting weights, you've got to have blood pumping to the muscles that's rich in oxygen. If you want to obey the clear commands of God, you've got to have a heart that's rich in knowing God's promises. A fire needs fuel, right? Helping Scotty with his flooring was like one of my favorite parts, just taking all the lumber out there and extra trim, just throwing them on the fire. Just seeing a little smoldering ashes and then within a few minutes you've got a large fire. Why? Because he added fuel. Obedience to the Lord needs God's promises to fuel your efforts for him. Paul stays there 18 months laboring, seeing many come to faith. And it's good that the Lord made clear promises to Paul because gospel opportunities often bring gospel opposition. Okay, I'm not going to say much about this. This is pretty straightforward. We see the Jews in Corinth attempt to get the Roman government involved in shutting down the church. This act is a common approach in Acts. You know, go tell on them. Go tattle to the Romans. Use the power of the Roman state to try and stamp out the church. 
And the Jews bring spurious charges to Gallio's court, arguing that Paul's a Jewish heretic. And what does Gallio say? I don't care. Why do I care that he's teaching something different about your law? That is not relevant to the state. And he tosses the charges. But more importantly, Gallio's decision in the sovereignty of the Lord establishes a legal precedent in the Roman Empire of affirming Christianity as an accepted faith. Christianity won't be seen as an illicit religion, which the, which the Roman Empire has to stamp out. God is exhaustively sovereign over the process. Not only does the Lord protect Paul and the church, but it's unbelieving Jews that help Christianity to be affirmed as a legitimate faith in the empire. He keeps taking his enemy's efforts and thwarting them. It's glorious. And not only that, I mean, mercy, poor Sosthenes. You know, I mean, he's, I know he's the Jewish synagogue ruler and he's opposing the church, but that man gets beaten by the mob. Not Paul. Paul walks out. It's the Jewish opponents that get stomped. There's a place for Christians to seek legal protections and remedies in a nation or culture. It's good. Why? Because we want to see the church protected and the gospel advance. So during COVID, we saw Grace Community Church in L.A. We saw Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Both sue governing bodies. State of California and the District of D.C. Why? So that they might be able to gather regularly in obedience to the Lord and to preach the gospel without having some indefinite period where the state was just actively prohibiting them from gathering. And both of them won. I think it was the right thing to do. And in our situation, if that came to us, we would sue the state. We'd sue the city of Charleston, if necessary, in order that the gospel might advance, in order that we might obey. So we'll continue to address Paul's interactions with the state in a couple of weeks uh, and as we continue to move through Acts. But Acts 18 provides an important legal precedent for the Christian faith being protected which allows the Corinthian saints to have liberty to proclaim the gospel in the city. So how are we using our freedoms here? How are we using our freedoms here? Lean into God's promises in order that you might effectively obey God's commands. May God cause us to grow in being kingdom-minded saints as we seek to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in our city.